Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you tonight in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It is a joy to be here with you. I want to thank Bob and Devin for the invitation and thank you who serve the church by leading us in worship and pointing us to the greatness of God. I want to get right to my assignment tonight and I would point your attention to Isaiah chapter 6. Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we will hear the reading of God's word together. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to thank you and praise you for the gift of this day and for the privilege of walking this day in the assurance of our salvation and for the Lord Jesus Christ who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our pathway. I pray that you would help me to speak your word tonight with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And I pray that you would help us tonight to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy and slander, so that as newborn infants, we will crave the pure milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. And as the seed of the word is planted in water tonight, we look to you for the increase and reserve for you the highest praise and full credit for the fruit that shall come from this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning at verse number one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Amen. The reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 6 records 
Isaiah's life-transforming vision of God and subsequent call to prophetic ministry. It is arguably the most well-known of the 66 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, and rightfully so. This chapter records the stirring and dramatic testimony of a sinful man who had a violent encounter with the holiness of God but lived to tell about it. Whatever the details are that are left unmentioned, fundamentally what we have here is a moment in time in which Isaiah's gaze was lifted above and beyond his physical circumstances in which he received a vision of God that transformed his life immediately, completely, and permanently. God the Holy Spirit moved Isaiah to leave this testimony on record to call us to a high view of God. No, I don't suggest tonight that we need to run about seeking to reproduce Isaiah's personal vision, but we desperately need the resulting view of God that Isaiah had as a result of this encounter with the Lord. Decades ago, A.W. Tozer wrote, the greatest need of the moment is for lighthearted, superficial religionists to be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. In his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, John Piper tells of using Isaiah 6 as a pastoral experiment. Begin the year, he preached through the vision of God recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, but he intentionally left out the implications, exhortations, and applications of the text. The test was this, was the passionate proclamation of the sovereign holiness of God enough in and of itself to meet the needs of his people? Some months after, Piper received the disturbing news that a couple in their church had been made aware that their child was being molested by a relative. After service, the father told Piper of some of the sordid details and asked for prayer and said in those moments that It's been the difficult, most difficult months of their lives. But he said, do you know what has helped us get through? It was that vision of the holiness of God that you preached at the beginning of the year. He said, it has been a rock upon which we have been able to stand. This kind of scripture-driven, gospel-saturated christ exalting worship is the bridge between today and the timeless. The bottom line I want you to get from this text is that your view of God is everything. 
In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. I repeat, your view of God is everything. It doesn't ha matter what, what you have. If you don't have a proper view of God, you really don't have anything. It doesn't matter what the assembled congregation experiences in the worship, if, if they don't see God as he truly is, we have nothing. But when God is in his proper place in our minds and our hearts and affections, everything else will inevitably fall into its proper place. So the question on the table tonight is, what is your view of God? In these eight verses, I want you to consider with me three aspects of a high view of God that should shape the worship life of the assembled people of God. The first lesson of the text here before us is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The Bible is clear and consistent in telling us that humans cannot see God with the naked eye. John 4, verse 24, Jesus says God is spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul declares that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. First John chapter 4, verse 12, just bottom lines it. No one has ever seen God. But in the first verse of our text, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. <laughs> what, what did Isaiah see that day? There is a hint by the title he ascribes to God here in verse 1, I saw the Lord. Notice that Isaiah calls God the Lord in verse 1, and he reports in verse 3 that the seraphim, the angelic beings, call him the Lord of hosts in verse 3, but Note there's a subtle difference that you might see in your text. Verse 1, Lord, spell capital L, lowercase o-r-d. In the Song of the Seraphim in verse 3, Lord is capital L with small capitals o-r-d. That subtle distinction you may already know is the translators hint to us that there are different Hebrew words for God being used here. 
In verse 3, Lord in all capitals translates Yahweh, the covenant name of God with which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the great I am. It points to God as the self-existent one. But here in verse number one, Lord, capital L, small case O-R-D, translates the term Adonai, while Yahweh speaks of the self-existent one. Here, the emphasis in Adonai is the sovereign one. Isaiah didn't see God's essential nature. No one can see that. But he saw a vision of God's sovereign authority that is emphasized in verse 1 as Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. John, in John 13, gives us a further indication of what Isaiah saw. John chapter 13, verse 39 and 40, points to Jesus and his work as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. And then we are told, that Isaiah saw, said these things when he saw the Lord in his glory. John's statement is that in some way, Isaiah saw a pre-incarnate revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That before Jesus was born in Bethlehem's barn, John 12, 39 through 41 is the reference. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem's barn by the Virgin Mary, there was a sneak preview of coming attractions. <laughs> and he saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting on a throne. And the first emphasis here in this vision of God is on his sovereign authority. He sees that no matter what is going on in the world around him, and there is much, God is still on the throne. Amen. Notice what Isaiah teaches us here. To affirm the sovereignty of God, the first reason why God is sovereign over everything is that only God is eternal. Only God is eternal. In the year, verse 1 says, the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The story begins here with a time reference. Isaiah dates his experience to the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah was the ninth king of Judah. He took the throne as a teenager and reigned longer than any other king of Judah. His story is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, where we see that he was a success politically, militarily, economically. I love how 
2 Chronicles 26 describes Uzziah. It says he was marvelously helped by God. I like that. That's what I want. <laughs> he wasn't just helped. He was marvelously helped by God. But 2 Chronicles 26 says that he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And when he became strong, he was lifted up in pride. And he decides he is not content anymore to be king. He is going to be king and priest. And he inserts himself in the temple to offer sacrifice at the altar that he is not authorized to make. Godly men warn him not to do it, but he uses his royal authority to insist on having his way, and in the midst of his rebellion, God struck him with leprosy. And he was banished from the country that he built, and he died in an isolated house as a lowly lonely leper. And Isaiah says, in that year, when Judah's throne was emptied, I received a vision of God that made it clear that heaven's throne is still occupied. Amen. The Lord is still on the throne. With all the political upheaval around us, you can't turn on the news without hearing about it. Our people need to be made to look up. Yeah. And remember that a hundred years from now, every major world leader will inevitably have to give up their place of authority. But while the parade of world political leaders comes and goes through the midst of it all, God is still on the throne. Psalm 90, verse 3, Moses declares, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal, but also God is transcendent. I saw, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Other rulers sit on thrones. Isaiah would surely acknowledge, but he wants to make it clear that no human throne is on the level of God's throne. I saw the Lord, he says, sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. The throne of God is infinitely higher than the authority of man. He is seated in authority untouched. By human rebellion, Isaiah, rather Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Be still means give up, quit striving. Let your hands drop down. Don't try to fight against God. The end has already been determined. God will be exalted on the earth. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says of Christ that God has already highly exalted him 
and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadems and crown him Lord of all. God is eternal. God is transcendent. But also we see right out of verse 1 that God is majestic. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. God's glory and majesty was so great. He describes it this way, the train of his robe filled the temple. (laughs) In the ancient world, Monarchs, kings, rulers would demonstrate their greatness by the length of the train of their royal garments. But while human kings competed for greatness, Isaiah says God is so great that when he showed up, the train of his robe filled the entire temple. You've been to weddings, you've seen the bride come down the aisle with the extra flowing material following her down the aisle. What's the longest bride's train you've ever seen? Whatever it is, you've never seen the bride's train so long that by the time the ushers finish stuffing it in the room, It has covered the pews and the people in every empty place. But he says when God's presence showed up, the train of his robe filled the temple. He is saying his glory covers the earth. In Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 22, In warning of divine judgment, Jeremiah says, And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Answer, it is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. In the ancient world, a man would be put to shame by lifting up his robe to show his legs. This is what Jeremiah describes. He describes the violence they will suffer in judgment as their skirts being lifted up. Man who rebelliously thinks he is more than he is, God says, I will lift up his skirts and show you are just a man. But God is so great that the train of his robe fills the temple. This is the first lesson of the text. God is sovereign. The second major lesson of the text, the truth, that our people need to be made to look up to remember and worship 
is that God is holy. God who is sovereign is also holy. Holiness is one of the neglected attributes of God in the contemporary church. Ask the average Christian, kind of man on the street fashion, what is God like? And you are prone to get a list of attributes mentioned before the holiness of God comes up, if at all. This doesn't represent the scriptures. In the Bible, holiness is the defining attribute of God. The term used in the Bible to describe God more than any other term by far is the term holy. In fact, throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, he will regularly refer to God as the Holy One of Israel. In fact, as you read the Bible, you'll note that God is so holy that things associated with him are therefore called holy. And so his word is holy, and his name is holy, and his law is holy, and his people is whole, are holy, and his temple is holy. His promises are holy. The Bible emphasizes the holiness of God. And yet, in the real sense, the holiness of God is hard to understand, hard to explain. To define holiness is to define God himself. No one can fully do that, but we must seek to understand the holiness of God if we are to know him and trust him and serve him and obey him and worship him. Here in Isaiah 6, the holiness of God is not defined as much as it is described to us. On one hand, it is displayed in the seraphim's posture, and then it is declared in the seraphim's praise. On one hand, we see that the holiness of God is displayed in the posture of the seraphim. Verse 2 says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The term here, seraphim, literally means burning ones. Every other place in the Old Testament it is used to refer to fiery serpents, but here the term is used to refer to some order of angelic beings. These seraphim have some things in common with humans. They have faces and feet. But at the same time, these seraphim have clear distinctions from humans. The first is in the name, yes? Burning ones. Isaiah looks up and sees these figures hovering above the throne of God. And he says, seemingly straining for words, that they look like humans, 
on fire. The second distinction is the fact that they had wings. Six, to be exact. These seraphim hover above the throne of God with six wings. With two of these wings, they, they flew. The language is interesting in verse 2. It says, above him, the, ster- the seraphim stood. <laughs> in verse 1, Isaiah goes out of his way to tell us God's throne is high and lifted up. There is no one on God's level. And now in verse 2, he tells us above his throne are these burning ones floating around. He is not suggesting, of course, that these seraphim are greater than God. I think this is a picture of the role they serve. They are hovering around and above the throne of God, guarding the holiness of God against sinful intrusion. If I may, these seraphim are God's supernatural secret service team. Her guarding the holiness of his throne from sinful intrusion. So they hover over the throne, but they only do that with two of the wings. They have four wings left. And Isaiah says with two of those wings, they, they cover their faces. God's Character is so perfect. His presence is so brilliant. His separation from creation so infinite that these angels couldn't stand to look directly at God or have God look directly at them. So with two wings, they veil their faces. They veil their feet. I think a hint about what that's about is found in Exodus 3. When Moses is leading his flock the backside of the desert, and he notices in the distance a bush burning. It initially doesn't mean much to him. He had seen hundreds of bushes burn. But the longer he stayed out there, Notice that bush, the bush was burning, but wouldn't burn up. And he decided he had to get a closer look. And as he approached, a voice spoke from the bush and said to Moses, take your sandals off of your feet. Don't come any closer. Take the sandals off of your feet. The ground upon which you stand is holy ground. If the desert is holy in the presence of God, how much more is his holy throne? The seraphim don't have sandals to take off, but they do have wings. And with two wings, they cover their feet, and two wings, they cover their 
faces. This is a dramatic picture of the holiness of God. Later, we will see that Isaiah's response to God's holiness is, woe is me. That's the proper response of a rebellious sinner in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah was right to be afraid in God's presence. But why are the angels afraid? They have committed no sin. This is how infinitely holy God is. God is so holy that the holy angels that guard his throne themselves better guard themselves in the presence of God lest they are consumed by his holiness. God's holiness is put on display then by the posture of the seraphim, and it is also declared by the praise of the seraphim. <laughs> if I suggested that these seraphim guard the throne of God, but if so, with what do they guard his throne? Not with their wings, not with fire. Verse 3 indicates that they guard God's throne with an antiphonal chant of praise. One called to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Devotionally, one reads these words and immediately is led to think of the Godhead. And that the threefold references to the holiness of God affirms the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Indeed, God is one in essence, three in person. Father, Son, and Spirit, coexistent, co-equal, and co-eternal. But that is not what this passage is saying. Holy, holy, holy is a means of emphasis in Scripture. Repetition is emphasis. And here they are speaking of God emphatically to declare His holiness. It is one thing to call God holy. That's enough. To call God holy twice is emphatic. To call God holy, holy, holy is superlative. The angels are saying that God is so holy that our minds cannot fully comprehend it and our words cannot fully express it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And note, this is the only attribute of God that is mentioned in triplicate like this in Scripture. The Bible doesn't say that God is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. Or loving, loving, loving. Or good, good, good. But it does say he is holy. 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 Not just here, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, John 
writes of seeing four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they were never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Note the intimate connection between these two realities, the holiness of God and the glory of God. You cannot exalt the glory of God and downplay the holiness of God at the same time. The, the two go together. To see one is to see the other. To miss one is to miss them both. The conclusion of the infinite holiness of God, the angels say, is that the whole earth is filled with His glory. Think about that. We would say that as we look around, the world is filled with sin and hatred and poverty and injustice and pride and, and lust. But the angels do not get their view of the world by watching the evening news. Their view of the world is shaped by their view of God. And because this holy God reigns in sovereign authority, it has colored everything else that they see. And they declare the whole earth is filled with his glory. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, in fact, declares that God is majestic in holiness. We talk about powerful singing. You haven't heard powerful singing like this. This this song was so powerful that verse 4 says, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Every time the, the chant of praise was repeated, it was as if another earthquake hit the house. Everything went dark. The house was filled with smoke. Isaiah was trapped in the presence of God. He was as close, arguably as close to God in this moment as any human being may have been since maybe Moses, and yet he was so far away. But that leads to the third truth of the text, the timeless truth that is perennially relevant for our people to know and worship. God is sovereign, God is holy, and God is gracious. It is said that there was a convention meeting, a conference meeting where the discussion of those present was, what is it, what truth is it that makes 
Christianity distinct from the Christian faith. The attendees debated the matter. C.S. Lewis came into the proceedings late and asked what the discussion was about. When they told him, he said, oh, that's an easy question and the answer. The thing that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is grace. And he's right. Every other religion of the world is in one way or another trying to show man how to reach up to God. Christianity begins with the assertion that the sinner can never reach the holy standards of our righteous God. But though we cannot reach up to God, God has reached down to us. In the virgin birth, virtuous life, vicarious death, victorious resurrection, invisible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a message of amazing grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not a reward we earn for good works. It's a gift we receive by amazing grace. The text emphasizes this as there is in the text a subtle but important shift of furniture. In verses 1 through 4, the emphasis is on the throne. In verses 5 through 8, the emphasis is on the altar. Thank God for both. If there is a throne with no altar, if there is holiness with no grace, if there is guilt without forgiveness, we are doomed. Praise the Lord that the one who sits on the throne has set up an altar. So that sinful man might be restored to a holy God. The grace of God here is seen in Isaiah's contrition. And I say it, woe is me. Woe is me. <laughs> this is more than sadness or sorrow. This is a term of judgment. In fact, this statement, I believe, is why differently than other prophetic books, the call narrative of Isaiah is placed here thematically, not chronologically. We don't get the story of his call until chapter 6, which is preceded by messages of judgment on the rebellious sin of the people of God. In fact, in chapter 5 itself, the, the term woe is used seven different times in six different messages of judgment. In passages like this, however, the message of judgment usually comes in sevenfold. 
declarations. It's six in chapter five, but God inserts the testimony of Isaiah thematically here at chapter six as if to say that before Isaiah showed up to declare woe on you, he met God and declared woe on himself. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knows that these seraphim rightly sing praise to God. He further knows that he should join this song, but he cannot because he can't offer true praise with unworthy lips. He is confronted with the truth that he is to respond to, but in his sin, he is unable to respond. And he says, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah, this is not a, you know, misery loves company. This is not Isaiah saying, I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> this, this, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's not Isaiah putting down the people. It is Isaiah humbling himself. The one who has proclaimed judgment on sinners is now forced to confess, I am no better than anyone else. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I need to move on, but let me, let me bottom line this. What is going on here in this statement is that Isaiah is convinced he is about to die. There are a lot of people these days that have visions, quote unquote, of seeing heaven. And they're usually enjoyable, wonderful, even profitable experiences. <laughs> but but that's not the that's not how Scripture, when, when in Scripture people have an, a, a true encounter with God, when they saw the Lord, they were convinced that was the end. In Judges 6, verse 22, Gideon says, alas, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In Judges 13, verse 22, Manoah, the father of Samson, says to his wife, we will surely die, for I have seen God. After the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, in verse 8, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In Revelation 1, verse 17, when 
John saw the vision of the glorified, resurrected, exalted Christ. He said, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he wasn't thinking about finding a publisher and a movie producer to get the story out. (laughs) Isaiah was convinced that he was going to die. Moses was God's man. He was God's man. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, he, he says, show me your glory. This is what we say we want. Lord, show us your glory. But do you remember how God responded to that request? I I really can't do that for you. I know that's what you want. But I can't show you my glory because no one can see my face and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll be coming your way. I'll come down your street later on. I'm going to set you between the rock, and I'll veil my my passing. But when I have passed, I'll lift the veil and and let you see me from behind. But you can't see my face and live. Isaiah had seen the Lord, and he was convinced he was going to die, but he didn't. And that is the grace of God. That's not so deep there. It's it's grace that we are still alive. But praise God, grace doesn't stop there. We see it not only in Isaiah's contrition, but we see it in his cleansing. The text says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This speaks from the Old Testament economy, but there are allusions here to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Isaiah's cleansing from the guilt of sin is initiated by the will of God. Isaiah didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't even know it was possible. It was the choice, the will, the determination of the Father to forgive Isaiah of his sin. But not only is it initiated by the will of God, it is accomplished by the work of God. In Leviticus, we see in chapter 16, verses 11 through 14, that burning coals were a part of the process of the high priest sanctifying himself on the day of atonement so he wouldn't die in the presence of the Lord. But but Isaiah is not making this sacrifice. The work that provides forgiveness of sin is initiated by God and done on Isaiah's behalf. The angel with tongs takes the coal off the fire and places it on Isaiah's lips. And then it is announced by the word of God. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is a glorious illustration of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, whose blood and righteousness 
has paid our sin debt and opened for us a new and living way to God. We are saved by the sovereign will of God. We are saved by the redemptive work of Christ. We are saved by the dynamic witness of the Holy Spirit. But God's grace is also seen finally in Isaiah's commission. Verses 7 and 8. The text tells us here that grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs God his son. It costs the son his life. But there's a real sense in which it costs the one that receives it. It doesn't cost you to receive it, but it costs you once you receive it. Because God did not want to stop with the forgiveness of Isaiah's sin. He wanted to use him as a witness for his glory. So, grace is free, but repentance is painful. He has placed the burning coals on Isaiah's lips. And while Isaiah is nursing his lips, grateful just to be alive and moreover forgiven, he is graced in another way. God is in counsel with himself and graciously turns on heaven's surround sound system permits Isaiah to overhear the heavenly conversation. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah wasn't a part of this conversation. Noah was talking to Isaiah. He, he is sticking his nose in somebody else's business. But he just knows he should be dead. But he's still alive. And not only is he alive, but he has been forgiven by sovereign grace. Yes, yes. And so he just butts in and says, Lord, hey, <laughs> here I am. Send me. I am greatly convicted by those words. Isaiah writes a blank, signs a blank check for God to fill in. He says, send me with no idea of where he's being sent. Too many times in my life and ministry, I want all the terms up front. Isaiah will not know till afterwards that he is sent on an assignment that is doomed to fail. He is called to present a message that the people will not hear. But it doesn't matter to Isaiah. Grace has spared him. Grace has forgiven him. And grace has called him, and it doesn't matter what the assignment is. He just says, here I am, Lord. 
If you will condescend in grace to use someone like me, it doesn't matter what the assignment is. Here I am. Send me. This is what our people need day in and day out, week in and week out as we assemble together. As they spend the week looking around the world. We need to make sure that when we gather, they look up and be reminded of the sovereignty and the holiness and grace of God. That will transform our lives. You may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. You may seek earthly fortune and fame. The world might be impressed with your great name. But soon the glories of this life will all be past, and only what you do for Christ will last. Though your armies may control each hemisphere, and your exploits out in space cause men to cheer, your scientific knowledge may be vast, but only what you do for Christ will last. Though your songs and prayers are heard and praised by men, they all have no meaning unless you've been born again. Sinner, heed these words. Don't let this harvest pass. For only what you do for Christ will last. Father, in the name of Jesus, Would you teach us to look up, to see you as you truly are, and to be transformed by your sovereignty and holiness and grace. And as we lead your people in worship, gather with needs and hopes and dreams and lust and fears and sins and goals and challenges. May, may our singing and our teaching and our prayers and our invitations and exhortations and all that we design and do to lead your people in worship point them to the unchanging truth, transforming power, and unending authority of your sovereignty, holiness, and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.